Please open your Bibles to the 67th Psalm. To the 67th Psalm. This Sunday we will end our excursion through the second book of Psalms. Next Sunday we will have a resurrection message and then we'll begin a six-week series on the doctrine of Scripture. Then... God willing, we will return and start the third book of the Psalms. So, as this time draws to an end, I, I think it's a very fitting psalm for Palm Sunday. A very fitting psalm. Psalm 67 is, I think, really the, the great commission of the Old Testament. Um, another commentator referred to it as the Lord's Prayer of the Old Testament. We're going to see... God's heart and his people's heart for the nations that they would come to know and worship God. So let's read Psalm 67. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, and your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for the, you judge the peoples with equity. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. It's a short psalm, seven verses, and yet it... it has such a missionary heart. You see that, don't you? Over nine times, the, the nations, the ends of the earth, the peoples, and a great desire for them to come to praise and know the living God. Um, I just want to stop before we dive in. It's, it's a shame so many of the Jews of deep Jesus' day missed this point. Um, Jesus' message that God so loved the world, sadly, I think, was a bit of a shock to Nicodemus. The Jews... Um, despised and looked down on the, the goyim, the Gentiles around them. You can think of how they would walk around Samaria rather than dirty themselves in the dust from it, not even eating with Gentiles. And, and that was never the way it was meant to be. Um, God's plan has always been for his salvation to go out to the world. And so where Israel failed, now the church is tasked with bringing that news so we're going to look at this psalm. It's a corporate song. This is, this is meant for Israel to be singing as a people. Um, it's corporate prayer and praise. And structurally, we're going to look at this, if you look at the notes, a little differently than perhaps we've looked at previous psalms. <clears throat> the reason for that is that structurally, there's sort of a double sandwich. Um, there's a double ellipsis structure here um, where verses 1 and 2 and verse 7 are parallel. They say the same thing. That's sort of the, the bread on the outside of the sandwich. So in verses 1 and 2, you see a prayer to be a witness to the nations with the result that the nations would come to know God. And so in verses 1 and 2, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth and your saving power among all nations. And then verse 7, God shall bless us See the parallel, that all the ends of the earth fear him. So it's the same thought said slightly differently. And then on the inside, 
um, as sort of your, the inside of the sandwich, there's this double chorus in verses 3 and 5. Identical. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And so on the outside, Israel's prayer for God to bless them so that the nations will know about God. And then the inside is the actual nations praising God in, in the one stanza for his justice and shepherding and in the other for his providence. And so we're going to look at this outside in. We're going to look at this outside in. So we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 and verse 7 is our first point. And then we'll look at verses 3 to 6. So just to explain sort of the um, structures. It's a common Hebrew structure drawing attention to the center, especially with that repeated refrain there in verses 3 and 5. So point 1, verses 1 to 2, is a prayer to be a witness to the nations. A prayer to be a witness to the nations. And, and in verses 1 and 2, we see a request for evangelistic grace from God. I want you to notice how this works. The, the psalm opens with a request for God to be gracious to us, which in a psalm so heavily missions outward focus may seem odd. But there's a so that in, in verse 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all generations. There seems to be some sort of thought that God's pouring out blessing on his people will lead to, will result in his ways being known in all the earth, his gospel going out to all the earth. And so that's the logic of this prayer. Keep your thumb here. This psalm builds upon the logic of God's blessing to Abraham in Genesis 12. It, it absolutely does. And so let's turn to Genesis 12. <clears throat> where you will see this exact same logic for missions and for the blessing of the nations. Genesis 12 is God's call to Abraham. Right after the Tower of Babel's failure, where men seek to make a name for themselves, God calls Abraham and promises to make a great, his name great. And he says this, in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, sorry, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So do you see the logic here? God's going to call Abraham and he's going to make his name great and make him a great nation and he will bless him so that he will become a blessing. So that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the logic of Psalm 67. O Lord, would you bless us? O Lord, would you cause your face to shine upon us? Would you be gracious to us that your ways may be known throughout the ends of the earth? So the psalmist is, is, is absolutely aware of and in sync with God's blessing to Abraham. If you remember the gospel, Paul argues in Galatians, is rooted in God's promises to Abraham, not in the law, but in God's promises to Abraham. And so this is the prayer for evangelistic grace that, that Israel is praying in this psalm to be a conduit, a channel of grace. 
God's blessing was never meant just to be for his people, but it was meant to spread like the waters running down the mountains to um, irrigate the, the lands below. So God's grace pouring down on his people was meant to spread out to the nations. Um, that's what God said to Abraham, and the psalmist here gets that. What's interesting is the specific means of the request. Turn now to, uh, to Numbers. Because under this request for evangelistic grace, it breaks into two parts, a petition for divine blessing. Numbers chapter 6, I'm sure a passage that we're turning to regularly. Um, it's okay to laugh. It's okay to laugh. But this is, a, this, at the end of Numbers chapter 6, is a blessing, um, the Levitic, the priestly blessing, that I, sometimes I'll end a service with. It's in some um, traditions, it's how they close every service. And the psalmist sort of takes and alters slightly this, this blessing that will be very familiar to you, I think, when you see it. In Numbers 6, verses 22 through 26. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Okay, so turn back to Psalm 67 and I think you'll recognize how that blessing that God gave to Aaron and his sons, that priestly blessing for Israel, is being incorporated here into this prayer for grace. It says... May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. It's unmistakable. This is, this is utilizing that, that formula. Um, and what's interesting to me when I first read this is I'm thinking in Numbers, this is for the priests. So what is corporate Israel doing taking this upon their lips? And then it hit me. To the degree that they're interceding for the nations, to the degree that they are praying for all peoples, Corporate Israel is functioning in a priestly function. You don't need to turn there, but in Exodus 19, when God calls Israel to Mount Sinai, he says, I will make you a kingdom of priests, a treasured possession. And so Israel, even though it had a priesthood in the tribe of Levi, was supposed to corporately have a priestly function. Remember, priests stand in between man and God for man. They're, they're facing God with they're interceding for man. That's, that's the priestly function. Prophetic function is standing in between God and man, speaking to man for God. So to the degree that they are interceding with the Lord for the nation's salvation, to the degree that they are praying and beseeching God to bless them so that the nations would know, then Israel is functioning in a priestly sense, and it makes perfect sense then that they would take this priestly blessing on their lips Oh, Lord God, would you be gracious to us? Would you bless us? Would you make your face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth? That, that it, in one small sense, and like I said, most of Israel, at least by the time of Jesus' day, completely missed this point. But apparently there were times, there were peoples, whoever wrote this psalm at the very least, who got it, who understood that God's purpose was not to pull off Israel because Israel was great and God just wanted to make a big deal of them, but rather God chose this, this ragtag family, Abraham and his son and his 
grandsons and built a nation out of them and was intending to bless the whole world through them. And so this psalm, interceding for the nations, has Israel adopting sort of a priestly function as priests interceding with God for the, the salvation of the world. I think that's, I think that's pretty neat. Um, that, that here at least they seem to get it. So what is, what is meant by this notion of God being gracious, God making his face to shine upon us? Well, a shining face is the opposite of an angry or scowling face. A face turned towards someone is the opposite of a face turned away in indifference or disgust. A shining face implies favor. The favor of the one whose face is shining and it implies the friendliness of warm personal relationship. So what is meant by this blessing is actually something more than we normally think of when we ask God to bless us. Usually all we mean is that we want God to help us succeed at something or to enable us to make money or to give us a job or a house or a car. But although such forms of material blessing are not to be excluded by Aaron's blessing, they're only part of it in the lesser part. More desirable is that God himself would enter into a gracious personal relationship with his people. That's what's meant. God, don't be angry with us. God, be gracious to us. God, would you bless us by turning your face towards us? Just sort of think of it in a, in a smiling sense. Would you, would you relate with us? Not in your anger at our sin, but in grace and love and joy. That, that's, that's the blessing they're calling upon from God. In fact, the last few weeks in the Psalms, we've seen that when you're discouraged, your greatest need is to know God more. David, last week in, in Psalm 63, um, thirsting for fellowship and communion with God. Here, if we're going to do evangelism, if, if the work of missions is going to be done, then again, the church's greatest need is fellowship and knowing God more. Um, the fuel for missions then is God's people entering into deeper and deeper fellowship with him, that God would turn his face towards us even more, that he would cause his face to shine upon us, that we would know him better and more fully in Jesus Christ. That's, that's the prayer for blessing here. Um, and, and the psalmist is very much interested in means. The psalmist is very much interested in how this great commission is going to be done. He could simply sing and pray, Oh God, save the nations. And we could pray that, and that would be fine. But notice the logic. Notice that God doesn't plan for his gospel, for his salvation to go out apart from his people being part of the process. And it starts with grace poured out on God's people, specifically in a deeper and fuller knowledge of God. God turning his face towards his people. A request for evangelistic grace, a petition for divine blessing, so that the nations will come to know and fear God. And look at that in verse 2. The consequence of this cry for blessing will be that God's way will be known on the earth and your saving power among all the nations. I mean, there it is. There, there, there's God's purpose in, in choosing Israel was to pour blessings on them so that his ways would be known in all the earth. So that his saving power would be known in all the earth. That, that's God's, and it's always been his purpose. It's always been his purpose to choose a people and to work through them to spread blessings to the whole world. And, and it's great to see a snapshot where Israel got this. And it's, it's God's heart for them and it's God's heart for us as well. 
These, these are good prayers to be crying out for. Oh God, would you bless us? Would you help us to know you better? Would you, would you cause your face to shine upon us so that our neighbors and our friends and our communities and our country and this world will know you better? So there's a request for evangelistic grace in verses 1 and 2. Look at the corollary now, the other piece of bread on the sandwich in verse 7. Confidence in God's answer to such prayer. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Now, I think the New American Standard gets this correctly, that there's still a causality. God shall bless us, and the New American Standard says that, or so that, the ends of the earth will fear him. It's the same causality. And the difference here is that what began as a request, what began as a petition, now is a confidence. Because the psalmist has um, embraced God's design revealed in Genesis 12 to Abraham, because the psalmist knows that this is the very thing God is desirous to do, after they call upon God for his grace, they can confidently trust that God will give it. Because of course God wants to do the things he's declared that he's desirous to do. And so this is another great reminder for us that after we call on God for help and blessing, trust that he's going to deliver. Confidence that he will give his blessing and confidence that ultimately the whole world will fear him. Which is one little point to make here, which is maybe if sometimes you're asking God for help, for, for grace... Maybe the reason it doesn't arrive is because we haven't caught on to this vision that it's just about us. That God's giving of grace is always so we can pass it on to others. I was in the hospital this week with Bruce Pulver, who's um, what was supposed to be a minor surgery became a rather significant one. I believe he's out now. But we were talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where... where Bruce was saying that he's now better equipped to minister to other people. And I said, exactly. And in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comforts, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we can comfort those in affliction with the comfort which we have received. And so maybe one of the reasons we're not receiving grace is because we're not passing it on. We're not... We're not asking so that we can become that channel, so that we can become that conduit. Maybe we just think it's all about us. But if you get a vision to understand that whatever good things God is doing to you is designed to be spread out, designed for us to praise him, for, designed for us to tell others of his faithfulness in our lives, then we can confidently trust that he will answer our prayers. So that the whole world will fear him. That notion of fear is, is not terror and dread. In, in Exodus 20, 20, Moses tells the people, do, do not fear, the Lord has brought you here that you might fear him. And, and so there's a notion, he says, don't be afraid, but fear God. It's this notion of awe and reverence and respect of God. And, and to some degree, then, this psalm is anticipating the state of affairs in the millennial kingdom, when the whole earth will be ruled by God when all the nations will know him. Um, in Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3, we see a picture of this. Arise, shine, for your light has come, 
And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Or even just the wonderful language of Habakkuk 2.14 depicting the day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, there's coming a day after the Lord returns when all peoples everywhere will know. And, and we look to that day and we participate in, in sharing the gospel and in spreading his kingdom through his word as we bring people the knowledge of God. And there's coming a great day when every tribe and every tongue and every people will know. And this is God's heart and it's been God's heart and it's been his people's heart and it should be our heart as well. It should be our heart as well. So we call out, just to sort of review, we call out for God's grace on us so that we would know him better, so that we would know him more fully, that his face would shine upon us so that we can minister that grace to others. Um, that, that's, that's what God would have us do. That's his method, his means of spreading his kingdom, spreading the gospel. Then we look at point two. We've just seen um, a prayer to be a witness to the nations. Now we'll look at a prayer to see the nations worship God. A prayer to see the nations worship God. And this is sort of the center of the sandwich. This is the, the greatest point of the, of the psalm. Whenever this Hebrew poetry takes this structure, um, it's always drawing attention to the center. And then when you find in the center a repeated line like we do in verses 3 to 5, we know we're on to something big. We know we're on to the central point of the psalm. And so verse 3 and verse 5 say, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And then again in verse 5, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. This is, this is the heart people praising God. And so there's two reasons given why um, the peoples are to praise God. The first is for God's justice. God's justice and his, his shepherding role. Look at that in verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. You see, when the peoples have come to know God's saving power, when they have come to know his salvation, not until then, then they will also come to know God's justice, God's equity, that God is a great judge and king. You see, if you're alienated from God, then the notion that God is a judge and that God is righteous should be terrifying. But once you're adopted into his family, once you know his salvation and his grace, you can delight in the equity and the righteousness of God. In that day in the kingdom, when Jesus Christ is ruling on the earth, perfect justice, perfect law, perfect um, peace, we metered out. I had to look up the word equity just to make sure I understood it. It means just, impartial, fair. And, and so the nations are picturing redeemed in a relationship with the Lord, rejoicing in his justice and rejoicing in his guidance. And to some degree, we see that as his church, in the church. To some degree, we experience God guiding and shepherding us. He is the great shepherd. And so the psalmist just wants to get the news out of how great 
our God is, just how great Yahweh is, and just is excited and emphatically anticipating the day when the peoples will praise God, will celebrate God, will, will rejoice with a loud voice. Which brings us to the point next that missions exist because worship does not. Missions exist because worship does not. And that may seem like an odd thing to say. What I mean is this. The end of missions, the ends of missions, the final goal of missions is not the salvation of sinners. The salvation of sinners is a means to the end of missions. It's an important means. It is a significant and necessary part of the equation. I don't want to downplay that. But the ultimate goal of evangelism and missions is that people would worship the living God. Notice that's the emphasis here. The the emphasis is not human-centered, but it's God-centered. The focus is not on these lost people who need to know God. They do need to know God, but more than that, they need to know Him to praise Him. As the focus gets back on God, missions exist because worship doesn't. This is about God. And so the gospel and evangelism is is absolutely critical and sharing our faith and seeing people come to the Lord and more rejoicing in heaven Jesus says over one sinner who repents than on ten righteous who need no repentance is true but higher than that and loftier than that and when we're looking at God's ultimate final purpose and plan it is redeemed people who know him and praise him and worship him and, and we see that here that the, the psalmist is pressing beyond mere conversion to worship. He, he desires for God to get the worship he deserves. Desires for people to know the joy of worshiping the living God. Um, that, that's, that's the purpose and the end goal for all missions work, for all evangelism is worship. Because it's about him, it's not about us. Because it's about him, it's not about us. And then we see in point B, Let the nations worship God for his providential care. Let the nations worship God for his providential care. Verses 5 and 6. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. And so here, again, the focus is on not just one people group, not just the Jews. And it's not even really the focus on geopolitical entities. Nine different times and in many different ways, this psalm tries to get the point across that what we're dealing with here is all peoples, all tribes, all tongues. Nine different times we see in verse 2, in verse 3, let the peoples praise you, let all the peoples praise you. Verse 4, the nations, again the peoples, the end of verse 4, the nations upon the earth. Verse 5, the peoples, all the peoples, In verse 7, all the ends of the earth. The focus is everybody, everyone. And and the danger is just to think that the gospel is for some people. And so we need to be building a heart for this. We need to be crying out that God would send his gospel to all peoples. And, And so we need to cry out, oh God, would your gospel reach Democrats and Republicans and libertarians, and oh, that Al-Qaeda would praise you, and oh, that Syria would worship you, and oh, that Iran would 
know your salvation and praise you. And, and be just as jarring or more jarring to Jewish ears this than those types of sentiments would be to us. And make no mistake, this is only coming through a knowledge of God's salvation as verse two makes clear. That they may know your ways on the earth and your saving power among the nations. It's only through justification and the gospel. But it can be hard for us if we pick some of the, you know, some of the people groups that maybe we have a hard time loving. This, this psalm is emphatic. The gospel's for everyone. The knowledge of God is for everyone. All people should be worshiping God. All people should know God. All peoples should be praising him. And as his peculiar people who he's called out and loved, that he's poured out his grace on, our heart should reflect his heart. Our hearts should be passionate like this psalm is for their salvation. All peoples, all tribes, all tongues. And then we see praise and joy for God's providential goodness and care. And this is really the only time in the psalm where physical blessings come into picture. Verse 6, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. And so I think the picture here is of harvest, of crops, um, in, in the Jewish culture, this was a psalm that they would sing at Pentecost, which was the time of harvest. And so it's now celebrating God for his providential and good care. He causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. He, he makes the grass grow. He governs our world and our planet. He gives us every good thing. Deuteronomy says it's the Lord who gives us the power to make wealth. And and so he blesses us, first and foremost with knowing him, first and foremost with turning his face to us, being merciful to us, then by shepherding and, and guiding us. And here even at the end of the psalm, just through the physical and material blessings that he gives. It's not that those are absolutely unimportant, but they take a distant second place to the priority of knowing him. And again, all these things, all these blessings and all these graces are meant to go out. They're meant to channel through us to others. And that's, the, that's the big picture and point I want you to get this morning is that God never intends to be gracious to us apart from that grace spreading out, apart from that grace moving on beyond us. Um, that is his desire. It's all too easy to hope and pray that other people will do missions. But God wants us to be praying that he would turn his face to us, be gracious to us so that we could get his word out there. And part of that, we'll be supporting missions and doing missions work, but this is the means, this is the method that God has revealed that he chooses to spread his kingdom. Um, and what can get convicting then is, is you know, are we, are we embracing this? Um, John Stott writes, the same principle operates today. Non-Christian people are watching us. We claim to know and to love and to follow Jesus Christ. We say that he is our Savior, our Lord, and our friend. But what difference does he make to these Christians, the world asks searchingly. Where is their God? It may be said, without fear of contradiction, that the greatest hindrance of evangelism in the world today is the failure of the church to supply evidence in her own life and work of the saving power of God. Rightly may we pray for ourselves, that we may have God's blessing and mercy in the light of his countenance. 
Not that we may then monopolize his grace and bask in the sunshine of his favor, but that others may see in us his blessing and his beauty and be drawn to him through us. I found that very convicting when I read that. Um, that we should be pleading to know God better and be pleading for his grace so that we can evidence, so that we can minister that grace. You, you look at the emphasis here on worship, on knowing God and worship, and we should be a worshiping people. His praise should be on our lips. How can we seek for others to praise him when we who know him, if we, are, if we who know him are not? And so it starts with a heart check for us that, that our hearts would not want to stop the grace and hog the grace, but praying for the grace so that it can be ministered out. Praying not just for the salvation of the lost, but that they would come to worship God, which of course assumes we want to worship God. And so this little seven-verse psalm, sort of the great commission of the Old Testament, shows us how God would have us to do this. And, and again... Israel here functioning as a kingdom of priests praying for the world. We'll turn to one last passage to 1 Peter. Chapter 2. Remember, we, we looked at how the writer of this psalm understood that such a prayer by its nature is priestly and so he appropriates the priestly blessing and so Israel's praying this Levitic priestly blessing upon themselves so that the, the gospel would go out so that the nations would know God and the same concept of being a kingdom of priests which God in Exodus 19 declared to Israel was his plan for them Peter says is his plan for us the church so, so what does this psalm mean to us? What well, means exactly what it meant to Israel? Verse 9 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That, that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why has God chosen us? Why has God turned us into a kingdom of priests? So that we could declare his excellency. So that we could praise him. So that we could tell other people about him. See, it's the same, same pattern that you see in Genesis 12. It's the same pattern you see in Psalm 67. It's the same pattern you see in 1 Peter 2. It's always been God's purpose and plan. Always been his design to bring out a small, unusual people, the King James has a peculiar people, and to pour lavish grace on them, and through doing that, spread his grace to the world. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. And, and Psalm 67 says, O oh Lord, would you be gracious to us and merciful to us and cause your face to shine upon us. And, and then we get to First Peter, and he announces that we, the church, are a kingdom of priests, so that we might proclaim his excellencies. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now for our, our closing song. And I just want to challenge you to, to understand that we are a kingdom of priests. First Peter tells us we are. But what that means for us is this, that God has left us here. 
to represent him on earth to a dying world. God has left us on this planet so that we could intercede for the nations, so that we could plead for God for his grace, so that we could proclaim his excellencies to those who desperately need to hear it. That, that is God's heart for us, and it needs to be the prayer for our hearts so that we can help spread the boundaries of his kingdom to all the earth, to every tribe, to every tongue, and every people group. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that as we hear these words, uh, that they give us pause to think about uh, how to live our lives as we spend time with people that don't know you, uh, we who have been blessed by being called to you, we, we want others to worship you, Lord, and we want others to hear the good news and to bring other worshipers to you. And so give us wisdom as we live each day to cause this to occur. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Won't you please stand as we sing our last song together? Jesus Christ, we know.